am your host of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams, Emily White. I'm also the author of a book of the same title. And thanks so much for tuning in to, to today's podcast episode. Um, today is your live strategy and efficient touring. And I'm so excited to have Mary Kay Hughes uh, from Mandolin as my guest today. Welcome, MK. Hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I did touch on webcasting in this chapter of the book, but it was certainly written pre-pandemic. So the space has completely exploded. Um, you're a co-founder and CEO of, of Mandolin, as I mentioned. I, I didn't mention your titles, but that's what you are. Um, but I do want to start at the beginning because you are, to me, a real deal tech person. And... I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been pitched by so many music tech platforms over the years. Like, it, it just stands out to me that you know what you're doing. Um, so, you know, and and that's, you know, I'm fascinated, like, by your background. So you studied um, economics and, and computer science in college, right? That's correct. I don't I mean, know, liberal, yeah, go ahead. liberal arts school, but yes. And that's just the perfect background for not just what you're doing now, um, but your entire career. So take us back to like, you just graduated college, you worked at a venture firm. Tell us about, you know, that venture firm, Exact Target, because it seems like the perfect blend of business and tech, both of those roles. Sure. I, uh, so born and raised in Indiana and um, had, and the school I went to was DePauw, uh, which is in Indiana. And I don't know, I got mesmerized with tech. Uh, my first job in high school was actually working for an internet service provider. Um, and so I just, I knew I wanted to do that. I did a internships in the, in the tech space and learned quickly. I didn't want to be a programmer. So I knew I wanted to be in tech on the business side. I mean, as naive as I was, uh, but there was this program called the Robert Orr fellowship that was to help stop brain drain. And we have great universities in Indiana and then everybody gets educated and leaves. So it's to retain talent. And, um, I was able to get placed into this fellowship and that placed me at Rose Holman Ventures, which is a highly regarded engineering school. And they had received 55 million in funding from the Lilly foundation to focus investments on, uh, furthering education at Rose Holman with with economic de development benefits to the state of Indiana, and then basically it needed to have some return on investment to do an evergreen fund. So as a fellow placed at that venture firm, I was doing stuff as a 22, 23 year old that is just very uncommon evaluating, you know, pre revenue business plans that had some correlation to like uh, mechanical or electrical or computer engineering. Um, and that got me connected to the network, um, the tech, the very small but growing tech uh, ecosystem of Indiana and met Exact Target through that fellowship, which is where I jumped to. And it was an email marketing provider that grew into a broader digital marketing platform. I joked, I got interviewed by Scott Dorsey, who's the CEO and founder of Exact Target. And I was just so, <laughs> I was so you know, blissfully naive telling him, oh, 8 million in revenue is just a little bit big for me. And I want to be a CEO. And thank God he, you know, saw, saw through that um, and convinced me I should come learn 
what it means to take a company from 10 million to 100 million in revenue. They had just taken on a round of venture funding to accelerate their growth. And yeah, it just took off from there. It was um, so many different experiences across different functions. And we, um, I stayed with Exact Target like through the next nine years until we were acquired by Salesforce. And as part of that experience, I got to move to London and open up our, all of our international offices for three years and just, uh, you know, we scaled from 8 million in revenue to about 300 million in revenue when we were acquired by Salesforce. And then that just started a whole new journey with what is Salesforce. I, we Salesforce was 4 billion in revenue when we were acquired and it was just over 20 billion when I left. So I've just seen like every size and scale, uh, and like pace of growth, uh, every, this, my entire career race basically has been, you know, needing to like reinvent, uh, operations and processes and strategies like every six to 12 months. Um, and I've basically moved into different roles every like 12 to 18 months. So it was just a real exciting journey that I just got addicted to um, uh, what it means to scale up a tech business and uh, spend a lot of time with customers in the process because that's the only way to build really good products that drive value. Amazing. Um, so a couple of things in there. First, did you say you're originally from Indiana as well? I am. Okay, great. Where, and where in Indiana did you grow up? I grew up in Lebanon. It's just northwest of Indianapolis. Nice. And you said you wanted to be a CEO. Um, like, I what knew enough I knew what that meant. <laughs> yeah. So like, like, did you know you didn't know what it meant? Or like, where did that, where did that come from? I, th I think that's so cool. I don't even know if I can take myself back to my 23-year-old brain. Um, I mean, I was always like an overachiever like you, I'm sure. And I uh, I always liked to lead. Um, played three sports. I played tennis in college, super competitive. Um, so I don't know. I was just like had two older brothers that I followed around. Uh, and so I don't know. I think it was just like some like core – personality characteristics that I just wanted to be bold and, and do something. And I knew I wanted to be in business. So it was like that, I don't know. I probably just latched on to whoever was in charge, <laughs> the title that meant you were in charge. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so tell us about Salesforce um, because people freak out about Salesforce in a really good way. They're like, and not just about you, like, in, and I'm sure you know this in general, they're like, oh my gosh, they came from Salesforce. They were at Salesforce. And so Tell us why Salesforce is so amazing and then also explain what it is because I'm, I catch myself sharing like that you were at Salesforce and that's a big deal. But like, if you don't know, you don't know. So like, what is Salesforce at a basic level and why do people freak out about it? <laughs> uh, sure. Salesforce is a, I mean, at its core, a customer relationship management software. And, um, but what the, which means it's, what companies use to manage their relationships with their own customers. So um, it's it, it very it's, it started serving very much like B two B companies um, and having the software to enable like managing those B two B relationships. Part of the exact target was serving a lot of B two C organizations because it was about digital marketing, and we served B two B companies as well. But there's a lot more revenue associated with uh, driving digital marketing strategies to, to drive revenue um, on the B2C side. There's just more money to be had. Um, 
And so it's really expanded its footprint beyond just this like core, which is the sales cloud CRM um, into managing all, basically all engagement channels um, for a business and their, and their customers, whether those are consumers or businesses. Um, why people freak out about it is uh, it's really, you know, Mark Benioff, the CEO and founder of Salesforce, which is just over 20 years old now, it's founded in 99. Um, he really was the, I mean, he's considered the father of, of SaaS, which is software as a service. So before then, every enterprise software was on premise and you had to go in and you had to install it and you had to install upgrades and this concept of delivering software over the internet. I mean, Salesforce is, he personally didn't invent it, but it was really the first company that grew to a material size um, and it grew so fast, you know, to it, it, it's the fastest company to 10 billion, it's fast company to 20 billion, like the, their, the comparisons like Oracle and SAP and Microsoft, um, you know, Microsoft is bigger, but uh, it took a lot longer for them to grow to be a, to be a nearing $25 billion company in a matter of 21 years, it's just never happened before. Um, and so you think about that pace of growth with a new construct of a business model at the core being SaaS and Salesforce has just led the way in many new business models. So uh, as an example, when you go and install a software, people are signing five-year contracts and like what, how you retain that customer, just there wasn't a lot of effort around customer success and SaaS people can switch so much easier. So Salesforce is like, uh, Salesforce is credited for, for creating like what is the customer success fun function that uh, pretty much every B2B enterprise software company has stood up. And so it's just because it's a new business model, they've just been the, the they just led the way and lots of things operationally. And, and so they're very good at marketing. They're very good at uh, scaling sales models. They're, they invented customer success. So um, there's just really good business practices that they've invented and then evolved that people have followed. Um, Mark also started the 111 model, which was like a, a, a dollar um, and a and then time and equity would go to different um, giving back to the community. And so we had um, we had we had a week of uh, volunteer time off VTO that lots of other companies have adopted. So it's just a trailblazer in a lot of different way, a lot of different things around culture and business model and. Uh, you know, Mark's known for saying um, the business of business is to change the world. Um, and so he, there's just some very unique, innovative things that come out of Salesforce. And so as an employee of Salesforce, you get real insider knowledge as to how that evolves and how you make it happen and make it real and not and like kind of put your money where your mouth is on some of those bold statements. And so it's it's a very, it's, I, I can't say enough about everything I learned from my time at Salesforce. Well, and it's so important for the artists and industry people listening this to understand that as well. Um, that's kind of the point of this book and that's kind of the point of this podcast. And, um, you know, we're recording this in December, 2020, it'll be out in 2021, but yesterday Image and Heap uh, launched her creative passport um, where basically she's trying to get artists to put all of their data in one place so artists can become empowered. So I 
you know, um, there's a point, I mean, I was interested in everything you just said, but it's also really applicable to the music industry because I'm constantly preaching to artists and industry people, collect data, get those email addresses, phone numbers, fan location. Um, and you just said Salesforce was like the first to reach 25 billion or whatever. So, um, yeah, we can do that too as, as an industry. I mean, does that make sense at all? I mean, that's why we started Mandolin. Um, I, the, there's so many industries that we have that I, as as part being a part of exact target and Salesforce that we've helped transform, whether that's through build, like really building, uh, direct to consumer relationships that hadn't been done before. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Or evolving them in a very fundamentally different way, uh, leveraging like the digital channel. Um, and so I have been taking a crash course in learning the music industry over the last six months. And uh, I see nothing but opportunity in this area for this industry. And that's what's super exciting. Fabulous. Um, so tell us about Mandolin. Why, why did you leave Salesforce, start Mandolin? Like tell us, and it was, it was post-pandemic, I believe too. Tell, tell us all about that. Yeah, the um, I, so I have two co-founders. One's the CTO, Steve Caldwell, and the other one is um, heads up our, our legal, and he, uh, Robert Midas, and he's been a music lawyer, has a really great group of clients he's been serving over 20 years, um, Cage the Elephant, Sean Colvin, Sufjan Stevens, uh, Kebmo. So he's, he's got great artists uh, he's been working with. And um, the High Alpha is uh, our lead investor, but they part of their strategy is in, in their venture firm. Part of their strategy is also starting companies from scratch. And they have a methodology they use um, to really just kind of throw 15, 20 people at an idea and really work it very hard for a full week, developing prototypes, having 50 to 75 market validation conversations and, and just beat, beat it up and decide, is this something worth pursuing? Um, and so Robert and Steve got paired together through High Alpha um, and Robert had just, he manages his wife and he's talking to his clients every day. And this was in April. He, he brought it to them and just saying, Doing, trying to do these free streams on Facebook are just is just not going to be what lasts for, forever. Yeah. Um, and so they, after they worked that for about a month, they came to me to say, "This is real, and we are going to move forward with it, and we'd really like you to lead it." And I know the High Alpha team, the High Alpha partners, really well. Over and uh, they had brought me a number of ideas over the last five years, none of which I got excited about. And man, this this concept was so different um, in terms of I saw I saw the market opportunity. I saw, you know, every good idea comes from like a pain point. And wow, the music industry was in a lot of pain. And um, I really honestly got enamored with the opportunity. And I love, I love urgency and speed. And uh, when you're creating a new market, sometimes it can be long and slow. And 
in this case, I saw COVID as this really compelling accelerator of market creation, but not, but not a dependency. And, um, that was, that combination was really unique to me. And I was really intrigued by the, I've always been intrigued by the music industry and to do something totally different, but apply all the experience and, uh, skills I had learned, uh, on a totally new problem set and market opportunity. I mean, it took me about 72 hours to decide and, got started like after Memorial Day and then like really never looked back. Well, our industry is lucky to have you. Um, I'm, I, I'm grateful that you turned down all those other ideas to run. <laughs> That's <you>. awesome. <laughs> um, so you said you were always intrigued by the music industry. What, what, did, what did that mean before you entered it? And what do you think of our industry now, now that you've been living and breathing and working so hard in it for the past six months or so? Yeah, I think any any industry that has like this, per, you have a personal connection to is so different. You know, I I've served so many different verticals and and healthcare and financial services and is, you know just there's less of a human connection there. I, I I spent a lot of time in retail, which was obviously have a personal connection to, but it's still very much uh, there's still a very commercial led aspect to it. Where the music industry is, this, it's such a it's such a human-led aspect to it, but you know there's a business behind it. But from a music fan outside looking in, it's a pretty big black box. Um, and so it was intimidating, uh, but but to think, like, how am I going to learn that? Um, but it also felt like such an opportunity um, – you know, just, just I, I, there's been disruptions already in the music industry by tech, but generally speaking, it's just not a very like tech heavy industry. So it was like, this, it was intimidating and exciting all at the same time to see what we could do. And and now that I'm in, you know, I, there's still, there's, I still don't know what I don't know. Um, it's been a, it's been a lot. I mean, I think it's been beneficial for me to be learning the industry when it's not operating at its normal state. Uh, so people's willingness to educate and lean into new things and try to figure out like, no, they have to do something differently. So open to the conversations and things I think has been super beneficial. Um, it's like a, a little bit easier, I think, for an outsider to come in when what worked before wasn't working. Um, I, I, uh, I, I continue to be intrigued by it. I, I, I'm frustrated by it daily <laughs> as well. Um, but I mean, I think what's really cool is there are, it's such a diverse group of people, backgrounds, skill sets, personalities, uh, but the, the like passion is such a theme that comes through like no other industry I've worked in. Um, I think there's, of course, there's some, of course, there's some cutthroat is probably too strong of a word, but, you know, of course, it's not. It's not kumbaya in every in every transaction and business and business deal, but particularly at a time when the industry's struggling, it's been it's been really impressive to me to see how how altruistic people are. Like we're talking with artists on doing live streams, and they and we bring in venues to like do affiliate sales, and and they're just they do want they do want the whole industry to be successful. It's not like every man out for himself right now. And, the, and at least what I've experienced in like a much more material way than I think other industries would react. 
Um, so that's been super, that's been really cool to see. I mean, every industry says we're relationship driven, we're relationship oriented, but I'm not, I'm not sure any, any industry can compare to the music, the music one in, in that respect now that I've, what I've been experiencing, but I, but that's been, uh, I, I have been able to meet people like yourself that have been so helpful, um, that I, I, I think the music industry maybe sometimes gets a bad rap to like kind of hard to get an outsider in. But my experience has been um, there are there's been dozens of people, customers, and and other that have been more than willing to uh, kind of help me help them, um, and that's been really cool to see. That's so interesting, and um, if you're able to, because sh- you you said you've also run into some fr- frustrations in the music industry. Obviously, you don't have to be specific, but where what pain points have you hit? Like, how can we make it easier and better when when people come in and and want to build great tools for us? Um, I think there's it's like it's just very hard to navigate the, like the decision making, right. um, and that's that's that can be universally applied. I'm sure. Um, so, so, so maybe it's my lack of understanding the, de- the decision-making nature. Um, there's, there's also, it's like a web of stakeholders involved in it. And it's like yeah. nuanced enough every time that once you think you got it, you don't. Um, so maybe, maybe the way to say that is like a lack of consistency. Um, yeah. Things get done. Um, and uh, it's also there's so much of a pay to play mentality that when like coming from a tech industry where I'm providing a service and a platform that will help you make money. Yeah. Uh, that still involves like, what am I going to pay you to use that is um, <laughs> when that's part of the conversation that that's um, I get it. It's how the industry works. But again, just as, as, a, as a newbie in the industry, it can be like frustrating. Like, wait a second, I just articulated to you all the value that this platform can provide. Um <laughs> isn't that isn't there like an exchange here um so i've had to completely rethink pricing models and revenue forecasting and kind of break my own mold in my head of those things um that t- traditionally work to make to apply it and be able to still be successful in the music industry yeah and i know you know this but you're running into that one because you're working in the live space and so that's what you know we're not, not just that we're what we're used to, but that's what, you know, agents and managers and artists are programmed to think like, well, what's the offer? What's the guarantee? But that's a good segue into like, obviously the webcasting space is exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sets mandolin apart? Cause that's also why you're getting those questions, right? It's like, well, why should I work with mandolin and not, um, you know, these other companies that are contacting me? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, we have really leaned and we leaned in very heavily and making sure both from a production and platform perspective that we just put on very high quality events. Um, we knew the, the, the stream from your living room would, would run its course. Um, and so we leaned in heavily to work like working directly with venues and directly with artists and to put on and, and building a, a network of, of high, high end production partners to make sure that we, just put on a high quality 
uh, event, uh, which also meant it's easy to buy a ticket, it's easy to log in, it's easy um, to engage in whatever way you want, whether that's deeply engaged and interacting with other fans or casting to your TV and having a very pure experience of just feeling like you're in the front row uh, and like full screen, just super high quality audio video. Um, so that, that's been, I think we've been able to, and, and we've focused on reliability and scale and performance and, and that's core to our tech background too. So I do believe we are superior in that and, it, and the experience can speak for itself. Um, where, as we think about moving forward, like we'll continue to, we'll continue to be very thoughtful about the, the fan experience around fan engagement, whether that's fan to fan or artist to fan, uh, and with a lens for the, for the artists themselves or the venues around really well done monetization. And it starts with meet and greets and different VIP experiences. We're leaning into other ways to do like more microtransactions. So monetization for the artist that, that doesn't take anything away from a superior experience for the fan are going to be things that we will continuously innovate on um, for the live stream event itself. Uh, but where my where I just get really excited is, you know, back to what we were talking about before, which is we are collecting such robust data, not just around who your fans are, but how they're engaging, um, when they're engaging. Uh, there's such there's such good sentiment from the chats. Um, you're, we're also we're also developing like more profile modeling that all of that data can really inform a marketing strategy differently. You know, marketing a live stream uh, that has no geo boundaries is very different than marketing an individual show in an individual city or even a tour. Um, and so leaning into this like data driven approach to marketing with the data that we're collecting and, and building out marketing tools as well is, uh, is very, very important to us. And then, we're really thinking in, in the content that you're building as part of the live stream too, both audio and video content is we're, we're also building tools out to re-leverage that content in other ways and, and push it out to other platforms for whether that's to just engage with more fans and drive deeper engagement or it's to like create another monetizable event with those assets as well. So we're thinking that like live streaming is absolutely the core of our of of the platform but we really see that as the anchor of a much broader digital engagement strategy for for both artists and venues and um you know people I, i'm often getting the question and maybe maybe i'm leading you to your next question is like what about post what about post covid um and people are often like really surprised when i'm just like i'm 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 as excited for, you know, to, for us to be post-pandemic as anyone. And I think people hesitate because they think I'm like so dependent on COVID and that's what is, is getting people to adopt live streaming. But like live music and entertainment, like they're com it's coming back and we want it to come back. Um, and I, but I believe that live stream plays a big role in this industry returning like even stronger and more resilient than ever. Um, and so... Like, let's not think of live streaming as a replacement of the in-person experience, but rather an extension uh, that like impacts your reach and engagement capabilities with your fan base and the, the opportunity to start to 
to, to for growth, like really start to be endless when when done right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I'm I'm literally seeing that in reality. I saw an artist post to women in music this morning saying something like, I'd like to hire someone to run, but also market my a, a webcast that they were they were planning. I mean, she was talking about all the things you just said, how marketing it is different, you know, than a regular show. So um, yeah, to be able to offer people a suite of tools in the future um, is a total game changer for sure, which is not really a question. It's just a comment. I think this data like is going to really like this analytics and feedback loop that we have now is like, is going to help artists and venues make smarter decisions around like reach and uh, like, you know, this behavioral fan data should, should affect the future of touring decisions and right recording and album release strategies and merchandise. I mean that it's just, um, yeah, it's just so exciting. Well, and you know, I've been hearing, you know, we're tapping fans that were unable to go to shows, you know, if they're disabled, they're caretaking, whatever. They're like, this is great. <laughs> like people with little kids are like, I can sit on my couch at seven o'clock and just watch this. So um, yeah, we're picking up more fans that we would miss in person anyway. Completely. I mean, I personally have seen it like just with like friends and family that weren't big like club and theater goers, uh, but are big music fans and they want live music and now live doesn't have to be synonymous with like a crowded, a crowded club and not, um, or a huge, you know, arena. Um, but you still get what is, what makes live so special. Uh, so I, I believe, yeah, there's so such a different fan profile, regardless of like artist genre and type, there's just an incremental fan base for live music with this, uh, digital medium. Agreed. Um, so you kind of alluded to this, but, you know, um, the vaccine is arriving and, and happening. So, you know, we will return in person, uh, most likely, you know, in full by the end of 2021 for in-person shows. So where is this all going? Where is webcasting, venues, artists? What does this all mean? Yeah, I mean, I think we want to help inform the touring strategy. So maybe it's different cities or diff or a number of cities uh, to an augment like the fan base you want to reach with, um, with live streaming. Uh, but I think also it's like how we make the hybrid experience. So uh, how we make that in-person experience different too. We've been talking a lot about like the second screen experience for a live stream at home so you've got so you you do want to cast it to your tv and and have some friends over and have this like small private watch party of a show but maybe you still do want to engage with like other fans digitally so you've got your phone you've got the, the show on your on the screen but you can have a different experience on your phone to like be interacting within that specific concert so we've talked a lot about that um just for the live stream itself but that that those sorts of features and capabilities of the product will tr will translate really well into the end venue. So similarly, um, what's the digital experience of the fan and the venue? And there's even more data to be collecting, like behavioral data in particular. Um, like, how do we learn? How do we take all of this rich data we get from people attending a live stream digitally to 
about the people walking through the venue door and how do we enhance that fans experience of that concert if they want it. Uh, but then also how does that help the venue and artists learn more about the fans as well to, to further their strategies beyond the shows and tours. So um, I think that it is, um, you know, di- the, the, the future of digital and, and that we're in an all digital world is sometimes so like misinterpreted to be like it's replacing in-person things, but it's very much about augmentation. It's an and, not an or. Um, and that has that has been a conversation in retail, you know, like the balance of e-commerce versus like brick and mortar stores is a good analogy. And it's like, you never wanted to replace them all. There's still, still an experience to be had in the retail store. It just might be very different because it has this augmentation of digital. And that's how I think about like the venue, the venue and arena experiences can be um, as we, as we leverage this, this medium in more strategic ways for the industry. Have you thought about or, or discussed, and obviously feel free to not answer this if, if you don't want, like, do you realize that you're disrupting ticketing also? We do. Um, yeah, ticketing is a rabbit hole. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, w- yeah, we don't, we don't, it's funny when we started, we were like, yeah, we'll do ticketing at some point, but we'll just, we'll, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's, there's not a ton of, of major ticket providers. There's a lot of for small providers, but um, it was just like, that's a, that's, somewhat been commoditized and already owned and maybe there's not really a lot of opportunity for innovation. So we'll, we'll have a, like a bring your own ticketing provider strategy and we'll integrate with all of them. And that was like our, that was our month one strategy. And it, and it became very obvious that there's not, not, um, there was very much openness of like, no, actually we'd like for you to take care of this, make it seamless, make it easy. And so we, stood up ticketing in a way that was just like to as accretive to the end live stream experience and not to be not to be disruptive about it um but that you know that continues to evolve because now this is this there's very much a data story to be had here and data starts with the ticket itself um and all the after all the off market and second market and third market ticketing um things so there's so much to consider there. I don't, uh, I don't have like a strong point of view about what I think the future of ticketing could or should be. We're trying to, we're trying to think about it, the end game of what is that? What is, what's the best thing for the fan? What's the best thing for the artist? What's the best thing for the venues? What's the experiences we want to drive? What's the data we need to drive those experiences? And then we'll kind of come back to then like, what are the enablers to do that? Yes. And ticketing will be obviously one of them. And we have um, a platform. Yeah, go ahead. I was just like, ticketing will be one of them. And we're doing ticketing today. Um, there's nothing innovative that we're doing with ticketing at the moment. Well, there is because you can utilize that data how you want. And, you know, it's interesting. Like my mentor sued Ticketmaster in the early 2000s. So the band, the String Cheese Incident, could sell their tickets directly. And, and they won. Um, so there are some smaller ticket companies that will share that data with artists, but I think it might've been Imogen Heap, uh, when I interviewed her on this podcast where she pointed out that she has no access to, uh, you know, the data from Ticketmaster of fans who have bought her tickets. So I, I had not considered that until we started discussing this, but, um, 
you guys could do a lot of really good stuff for artists and fans there. So, um, yeah, the sky's the limit for what, what you're doing. I'm, I'm really, really excited about all of it. Um, so what, what kind of people are you working with? Like who, like, how can, you know, we help you as an industry? Like, you know, should artists be contacting you or are you only working with artists or venues at a certain size? Like who are you talking to right now? Yeah, we're talking primarily with artist management firms and managers. Um, we, we, we deal directly with artists sometimes, um, but that's more the exception than the norm. Um, the, you know, we are focused on like monetized events. So the artist size is, is, I mean, and you know this, I've learned so much about like, there's no magic equation around their digital reach right now that then translates to what their like loyal, loyal ship is. And then marketing plays such a big role. So there's not like an algorithm we have around it. I mean, we've, we're trying, um, it's more the, I would think of it as more as like, you know, can you warrant a 15 or $20 ticket? And, um, and then can like those, can you sell enough to kind of cover the expenses associated with not, not our platform, but more like the production and, uh, site selection, whether it's a studio or a venue. Um, so th- that's on the artist side and the venue side, we're, we're, we are, we have served venues of all size to date. I would say we're, our outbound efforts are more focused on clubs and theaters, like North of a thousand cap. Um, and now with touring coming back, we want to even go further up market as we just really want live streaming to be like a part of every tour strategy. So getting artists, to understand how that would work, but then also like helping the venues get that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply capability ramped up, whether that's the equipment or the know-how to like make that be a part of what they can offer versus having to kind of bring it in ad hoc every time. So, um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of like education and enablement happening around like how to do a live stream on the venue, like promoter side. Um, but you know, there'll always be artists that are just like kind of take it on themselves. Um, and bring that, bring their team along uh, and that team like includes live streaming capabilities. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but we're spending time on, on within, within both groups. We're also starting to partner like uh, with brands that have traditionally spent, you know, done sponsorships that can bring value as part of our offering. If we like strike different brand partnerships, so we're, we would love to hear from, from brands that like to, uh, spend money in the, in the space. And we're also, you know, after having partnered with you on I voted and build out some capabilities around like multi-artist events, um, and really replicating this festival, like feel or creating a digital version of it. Um, we're also really leaning into whether it's us, us kind of creating our own festival series or partnering with existing festivals, um, particularly in 2021, I think the hybrid model will really come into play. 
um, for festivals. So that's another area that we're excited to um, innovate around because we feel like our platform has some unique capabilities around the fan experience of a multi-artist show. I mean, you do, and I, I should give some background on that. Um, I mean, I, I reference I voted a lot throughout this podcast, and and so I think people know what it is. But um, yeah, we Mandolin was our webcast was and is our webcasting partner, and I mean, we handed off five hundred artists to you and your new team, which is just absurd. So the fact that you know you didn't just pull it off like it was so beautiful. We got so many compliments, like. You know, I, I have tons of in real life festival experience and and maybe it's like I'm just getting older or whatever, but like I walked away from that being like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Like I don't have to walk and and I love like being active, but it's like I don't have to walk like a million miles in between the stages, like these sets run on time. Like um I know there's other festivals going on, but um yeah, I, I just think, you know, what you did is so cool and what you're doing is even cooler. Thank you. It was, it was it was fun to partner with it. And I agree. It was like kind of a hypothesis for both of us that we could we could replicate an ex, a fan experience that would be as exciting as an in real life festival. And um, even just my own personal experience of like that feel of like bouncing from stage to stage and like the I, like I actually felt the replicated pressure I feel of like schedule conflicts. <laughs> totally. Awesome. Yes, there was even like after parties and hangs and um, I mean, in all seriousness, like it was I loved seeing that come together because I've seen so many people bond that way in real life to see it happen in the virtual space was really cool, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So last question, Um, you know, you're viewing a ton of webcasts, you know. What, what's working? What isn't for artists? Like, do artists need to be sen- spending a ton of money on production? Like, you know, what, what are you seeing creatively out there? Yeah, it's been, it's even the last few weeks has been um, particularly crazy as some of the bigger artists start to adopt it um, and just have ridiculous production budgets. Um, I, I mean, I think the, I think focusing on like this very pure audio, like like what makes live music special. Um, and I, I guess that's different for every artist. And we haven't had one of these million dollar production budget shows on mandolin. Um, but like we've seen them on some of the other platforms. Um, and so I think it's it's very specific to the artist, but the two the two biggest things to me have been that is like like let's just get the basics right first is um the intimacy of it being live and knowing you're watching it on a screen and not like however many feet or <laughs> yards away that like everyone gets this front row seat so really focusing mm-hmm. on the intimacy and quality of the audio i think it's just you just can't ever underemphasize like overemphasize enough and then also it's like the creativity and like of of the of the programming itself which i'm sure is everybody would say about every tour um but i just feel like the artists that we've worked with that have gotten really creative around album like an album front to back or a songwriter like uh, interlude of like, you know, why these songs matter or their favorite cover bands. Like Lucinda Williams did a series and she's covering different of her favorite artists with each show. And that's just had such good attendance and it's had good attendance 
from a state standpoint of like people bought the full show bundle because they knew each and every show was unique and different. And so they didn't want to miss any of them. And so that's been really great from an artist perspective, like getting creative around that has really accelerated monetization. Like we see when we do a series with like that creative programming across multiple shows and making them all unique, the adoption rate of the purchase rate of the bundles is so high. Um, so those are the two areas like, and, and then like leveraging the creative content to get creative with merchandising strategy and bundling and packaging strategies and unique meet and greet experiences. And yeah, that's more money for the fans, but the fans that buy that eat it up. Um, and they just love the experience and they come back, they come back for more. So it's a little bit back to basics, but I think that those have, those continue, like when we see our highest performing shows and series, it's like the quality around those two items that continue to be like the biggest drivers in my mind. You know, and I wonder too, that I, I talk about this in the book. Um, I, you know, I wonder if there's something to be done with the audio too. I mean, the video for sure also, but I, I thought when, you know, everything shifted to digital and more and more artists were owning and controlling their rights, um, there would be more live show audio recordings out there and, and like, you know, and, and artists have played around with it, like posting their whole, you know, tour on their website, you can buy the whole thing, you can buy individual shows, but it'll be interesting to see. And again, a lot of artists don't like that because, um, well, usually because of production quality. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. If these venues are starting to optimize and we're capturing that content, um, I mean, don't you like to hear when you're going to see one of your favorite artists and they say like Indianapolis or something? So I, I wonder if that could be an additional revenue stream or, or benefit um, from everything you guys are doing as well. Oh, I, I absolutely think so. I think I think this is going to make, um, I mean, I'm just seeing it. I think this is going to make, make everyone and like every show even better um, as we yeah. like think about hybrid particularly. Exactly hybrid that's where it where it's at um well anything else you'd, you'd like to add on about mandolin and anything you want i feel like i've been your ear enough i've enjoyed <laughs> the time awesome well thank you so much uh for being a guest mary Kay. it's really an honor to have you thank you for having me it's been great i appreciate awesome. it yes so that's a wrap for this episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. We will catch you on the next episode. Have a great day, night, wherever you are. Thanks again.